0: According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the Scriptures. Once again, we are in the book of Isaiah. Today we are in Isaiah chapter 27. Isaiah chapter 27, where it will be difficult to get past verse 1. But we have 13 verses to teach in the time that is allotted. In that day, the Lord will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent, with his fierce and great and mighty sword. Now if you know me, you know that I like movies with dragons and swords and people dying. And I've said many, many times, if the movie has dragons and swords and people dying, It's a a great movie and I'll watch it again and again and again. I don't care. People tell me that's a stupid movie. No, it's got dragons and swords and people dying. I'll watch it over and over and over again. You don't need a plot or a story. (laughs) Well, in this chapter, we've got a dragon. The dragon is named Leviathan. And we have the victory of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so it will be our blessing to study it here today. Before we do, let's take time for silent prayer and ask God the Father to sanctify our thinking to lead us into His truth. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank You for the truth of Your Word and the blessings that we have to assemble together this is a grace provision, Father, that you have maintained a lampstand in this location. And Father, by your grace, we, uh, we are here to study, to show ourselves approved. So we call upon your faithfulness to lead us into the paths of righteousness for your name's sake. We understand that you're not doing this because we've earned it or deserved it. You're doing this, Father, in your plan, your desire to magnify your Son. For it is in His name that we do pray. Amen. All right. In that day, the Lord will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent, with his fierce and great and mighty sword, even Leviathan, the twisted serpent. He will kill the dragon who lives in the sea. In that day, a vineyard of wine, sing of it. I, the Lord, am its keeper. I water it every moment so that no one will damage it. I guard it night and day. I have no wrath. Should someone give me briars and thorns in battle, then I would step on them, I would burn them completely, oh, or let him rely on my protection, let him make peace with me, let him make peace with me. Verse six in the days to come, Jacob will take root, Israel will blossom and sprout, and they will fill the whole world with fruit. All right, there's the first two sections of what we're going to do with here in this chapter. We'll handle verses seven through thirteen. Uh, separately, let's just stop the reading there and back up. What are we dealing with with Leviathan? Leviathan is pierced to begin the millennium. Isaiah 27 1, Isaiah, Leviathan is pierced to begin the millennium. And in all of our prophetic studies, of course, we want to try to coordinate them with other passages of Scripture. Uh, We're going to talk about Leviathan from the Proverbs, Leviathan from Job, and Leviathan from from Isaiah, and it's the same Leviathan every time, all right, it's the same dragon every time, and identifying when is it that he fell, when will he fall, and when will he ultimately be cast down. Those become significant studies when you correlate the different passages together. The solution I've come to, to reconcile Isaiah 27, uh, links it to the expression, in that day. And in that day follows what we were looking at in chapter 26 pertaining to the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ, pertaining to the time that he comes and has his victory over Antichrist. We spoke of that last week and the the nature of Jerusalem being plundered, the nature of the Jewish people fleeing, and the nature of Jesus coming at his second advent to rescue them and to bring them into their millennial kingdom. So it is in that day that the Lord will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent. And the study on the dragon, the study on Satan, becomes a very important study, one that we've done in the past. We will benefit today because we've done those studies in the past, in our previous angelology work, in our previous work in Ezekiel, and we're going to have it coming up again. So just uh, stay tuned. Leviathan, first of all, no human being can stand before Leviathan. It's the whole purpose for why chapter 41 is written in the book of Job. No human can stand before Leviathan, but the God-man, our Lord and our Savior Jesus Christ, will have no trouble defeating him. This is a great promise. In fact, this paints the picture for us that God accomplishes what we cannot do. That's normal for him. We can't save ourselves, so God does what we cannot do. We cannot defeat Leviathan, so God does what we cannot do. Part of God proving himself as being God is doing the things that only God can do and uh, setting aside the or uh, establishing the parameters of his ways versus our ways higher than uh, the heavens are than the earth, and we understand that. So Job 41, verses 1 through 34, and if I'm not careful, we'll spend the whole hour there. Um, But I will watch the clock and not allow myself to do that. Uh, no human can stand before Leviathan, but the God-man, Lord Jesus Christ, will have no trouble defeating him. We see the defeat here in Isaiah 27.1. We're going to see the defeat also in Revelation 20, verses 2 and 3, where a great chain is, uh, is cast around him and he is plunged into the abyss. Indeed, he has defeated him before. It's not the first time that he has stabbed this dragon. All right, I believe that uh, Psalm 74 points back to the past. But we'll discuss that when we try to correlate Psalm 74 with, uh, with these passages here. All right. As far as this verse goes, we have Leviathan as a proper name. We have dragon as a generic distinction. And there may be more than one dragon. That may refer to this, the type of angel that he was. We know that in Ezekiel he's called a cherub. Uh, but cherub applies to rank more so than physical description. Uh, dragon describes his physical description. How many heads does he have? What about his wings? What about his legs? What is he shaped like? All right, and we we learn when we were studying angelology that we can't uh, we can't fall for some of the um, preconceived ideas of what angels look like because very few angels look like the Renaissance artwork. <laughs> All right, very few angels. Uh, are pale, pale and Caucasian and blonde with with the two, uh, the two uh, swan type wings off their backs all right uh, angels those that do look humanish sometimes have non human faces in, in lion faces or eagle faces or or uh, bull faces like that, but many of the angels don 't even look humanoid they don 't even look like they 're standing they look more like beasts than they do like people and in the case of the dragon, of course. We have a very good description for him in Job 41. So join me there. We'll turn over to Job 41. So aim for uh, Psalms and then back up to Job. And uh, 41 is the second to last chapter. Can you draw out Leviathan with a fish hook? Or press down his tongue with a cord? And so many people dismiss this entire chapter as if it's mythology or as if it's, it's uh, mythological or figurative language, all right? It's reality. This is the reason why uh, God is putting Job in his place. Job is, is, has been taking his stand, uh, calling God unfair in these previous chapters. Now God is putting Job in his place and saying, look here, Job, you're not God. You're not greater than me, wiser than me, more powerful than me. You can't even handle Leviathan. And that's the proof that uh, Job is not God. All right. Can you draw Leviathan out with a fish hook or press down his tongue with a cord? Can you put a rope in his nose or pierce his jaw with a hook? Will he make many supplications to you or will he speak to you soft words? Will he make a covenant with you? Will you take him for a servant forever? Will you play with him as with a bird or will you bind him for your maidens? Will the traders bargain over him? Will they divide him among the merchants. You know, if you could bag a dragon like this, think about the profit you could make in uh, different applications. Can you fill his skin with harpoons or his head with fishing spears? Lay your hand on him. Remember the battle. You will not do it again. (laughs) Okay? The point is, lay your hand on him and it will be the last thing you ever touch because that dragon will kill you. You cannot go face to face with the dragon. Verse 9 Behold, your expectation is false. Will you be laid low even at the sight of him? No one is so fierce that he dares to arouse him. Who then is he that can stand before me? See, this is the whole point of God's argument. And the point is lost if it's not real. The point is lost if it's just mythology. The point is even more lost if it's a stupid crocodile or an alligator from the Nile or something that that, uh, people that want to explain away spiritual things, they want to explain away miracles, they want to explain away angels, they want to try to interpret their Bible only with natural uh, animal, you know, zoological phenomena. This is not an alligator, and the previous chapter was not an elephant, okay? Uh, Behemoth and Leviathan are what they are, and we've studied them before. Notice now, who has given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. God is the eternal I am. God is the only being in the universe that has received nothing from anybody because he has given everything to everybody, and that includes Satan and his rebellion. Remember, Satan himself is a creature. Satan himself has been created by God and received everything he's received from God. Verse 12, the description continues, I will not keep silence concerning his limbs or his mighty strength or his orderly frame. I think this passage was the inspiration for Tolkien when he wrote The Hobbit when he wrote uh, smog and his boasting over his, his wings and his claws and his uh, fire breath and all the rest of it. I believe that the, the, uh, the inspiration for that came out of this passage right here. So I will not keep silence concerning his limbs, his mighty strength, his orderly frame. Who can strip off his outer armor? Who can come within his double mail? Who can open the doors of his face? Around his teeth there is terror His strong scales are his pride, shut up as with a tight seal. One is so near to the other, that no air can come between them. They are joined one to another, they clasp each other, and cannot be separated. He sneezes forth, his sneezes, flash forth light, and his eyes are like the eyelids of the morning. Hardly a crocodile at this point. Out of his mouth go burning torches. You ever seen a fire-breathing crocodile in the Nile River of Egypt? All right. This is not a zoological animal. This is entirely the uh, the dragon. As a matter of fact, it's the fallen dragon I should highlight for you. Because uh, when you read his description in Ezekiel 28, he's jewel-encrusted. There's no diamonds and jewels here. There's no beauty here. It's just terror. Ugly terror and power in the fallen dragon. So out of his mouth go burning torches. Sparks of fire leap forth. Out of his nostrils smoke goes forth. as from a boiling pot and burning rushes. His breath kindles coals and a flame goes forth from his mouth and his neck lodges strength and dismay leaps before him. Now I have no trouble seeing a fire-breathing dragon in this chapter, but it's amazing the commentaries you'll read and the skeptics and the doubters and folks that say, well, you know, that's not real. That's just, that's just mythology. That's just legend and, and so forth. In any event, like I said, I could get lost in this chapter for the whole hour. And then show you video clips of smog and The Hobbit. And now we want to edify. Let's learn the lessons on this, though. Understand, our, our adversary is the dragon, not a myth. The real adversary that seeks to devour us. His heart is hard as stone, even as hard as a lower millstone. When he raises himself up, the mighty fear. Because of the crashing, they are bewildered. The sword that reaches him cannot avail, nor the spear, the dart, or the javelin. Even if you get close enough to try to stab him, not going to do anything. He regards iron as straw, bronze as rotten wood. The arrow cannot make him flee. Sling stones are turned into stubble before him. Clubs are regarded as stubble. He laughs at the rattling of the javelin. His underparts, you know, he's got no weak spot, not even in the underparts. Um, they're like sharp putzards. He spreads out like a threshing sledge on the mire. You know, if you get under there thinking you're going to find a, a weak spot, look out. That's, gonna, that's not going to be a fun day either when he starts threshing. In that regard. Alright, almost done. He makes the depths boil like a pot. He makes the sea like a jar of ointment. Behind him he makes a wake to shine. One would think the deep to be gray-haired. Nothing on earth is like him. He is unique. He was the greatest of all the angelic beings ever. Nothing on earth is like him. One made without fear. He looks on everything that is high. And he is king over all the sons of pride. Oh, that title is so important. That title is how you end up connecting Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28 and all the passages that talk about God is opposed to the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. God is the adversary to this dragon, but He exalts and glorifies Jesus Christ. If you can't figure that out as the plan of God, then I don't know what we've been doing all this time. He is opposed to the proud and gives grace to the humble. The angelic conflict is why there's humanity in the first place. Resolving the original angelic conflict that happened long before Adam and Eve. So, in the consequence here, if man cannot stand before this dragon, what a contrast when we realize that Jesus Christ accomplishes what you and I cannot do. Alright? In fact, he's done it before. He's going to do it again at least once. And depending on how you understand the final issue here. Um... Let's look at Revelation chapter 20 and see what is yet to happen in human history. But it is promised. All right, it is promised. You know, Hollywood makes all their movies trying to scare people, turning Armageddon into a a, a scare word. We shouldn't be afraid of Armageddon. Are you kidding? Armageddon, that's when we win. (laughs) Okay? Don't, don't, Don't be afraid of Armageddon. Be excited for it, because even before Armageddon, you and I are going to be resurrected and glorified. You and I are going to be immortal. So don't be, uh, don't be scared of Armageddon. We're going to be immortal going into battle against mortals. How, uh, how fun is that going to be? And so when you read through chapter 19, and you read through all the victory at Armageddon, over Antichrist, over the beast, over the false prophet, and all of this, then when it's over, In verse 20, I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon. So the dragon has already been cast down. The dragon has already been pierced. He's already been uh, cast down. And now he's being taken into custody. Laid hold of the dragon. This isn't even Jesus here. This is just a mighty angel working on behalf of Jesus at this point. Laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan. Any questions on who this guy is? (laughs) Okay. You see how redundantly these titles are being run through? Even better if they put the term Leviathan in there, but still, it's clear who we're talking about. The dragon, the serpent of old from Genesis 3. The devil, Satan, bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the abyss, shut it and sealed it over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years are completed. See, for the totality or for most of Jesus Christ's reign, Satan and all the other fallen angels are going to be bound and confined, and they're not going to be free to influence human activity. And human activity is still going to rebel even without angelic influence or demonic influence. But after these things, he must be released for a short time. There is a final release that's going to take place, because I believe this is uh, the Father's good pleasure to destroy Satan himself personally to not assign that assignment to Jesus Christ, but to personally send forth the fire from heaven to consume the dragon once and for all. And so this happens at the end of the thousand years. Verse 7, when the thousand years are completed. You see how fast that went by? <laughs> right? Did you realize that the thousand years can go by just like that? And you're like, wow, where did the time go? All right, just think about that. Because all through these verses, we're talking about thousand years, thousand years, thousand years, but then in verse 7, it's over. When the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison. Well, why? Does that bug you? Why? Why does he get released? It says he must be released for a short time. But why? Why is it a must? Why does God put himself under an obligation? God doesn't have to do anything if he doesn't want to. Yes, he does. God must be faithful to his own plan, and his own plan has called for volition to be expressed. And that includes the human demand for the release of Satan. He will give Satan to the nations that want him. They're going to demand Jesus step off his throne. They're going to demand that Satan be released. If you want a preview on that, they've done it once before. They demanded for Barabbas to be released and they demanded for Jesus to be crucified. So there's your shadow, your typology that precedes the fulfillment here with the uh, demand for satan to be released from his prison all right then when he leads the rebellion it says in verse eight he will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth this is the final gog and magog rebellion patterned after the ezekiel attack all right to gather them together for the war the number of them well he scraped together one or two malcontents no that's not what it says all right it says the number of them is like the sand of the seashore by the time Jesus Christ has f- finished his thousand-year reign, the bulk of humanity on planet Earth is sick and tired of God on his throne. Isn't that something? <laughs> and here we think if we just had perfect government, all the problems would be solved. Or if we just had perfect environment, all the problems would be solved. No. Even with perfect government and perfect environment, there are still sinners on this Earth. Human, humanity in Adam. And humanity in Adam is capable of doing what we see here in this, in this chapter. So, um, they come up on the broad plain of the earth in verse 9, and they surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city, and fire came down from heaven and devoured them. This is the final destruction of the of the dragon. Fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, Where the beast and the false prophet are also, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. In fact, the fire itself was designed for the angels. The fact that humans also get thrown in is is, uh, a later development in the process. Indeed, he has defeated him before. Psalm 74. I take this as a past battle. Not everyone does. But in Psalm 74, the psalmist is speaking as if this is a completed activity although it could be uh, looking forward in prophetically and writing about it in a past-completed way. Sometimes that happens, and that's worth considering. Psalm 74, verses 13 and 14. I think it's past. And, uh, and, and to me, we have a connection here with the, uh, the Exodus. We have a connection here to what happened when God redeemed His people out of Egypt. There was a battle that took place, not only in the earthly realm between human beings, you know, Egyptian soldiers and Jewish slaves, but also in the spiritual realm between God and and Satan, between the elect angels and the fallen angels. We know that those powers were at work when Moses was doing his miracles and Pharaoh's uh, sorcerers were doing their miracles and they had a, a real battle that was going on. All right. So in Psalm 74, um, I guess I'll skip on down here. Verse uh, 12 says, Yet God is my king from of old, who works deeds of deliverance in the midst of the earth. See, he's an eternal God, but he operates within time. He is both transcendent and imminent in the uh, dimension of the earth and within the boundaries of time. So my king from of old, my eternal king, who works deeds of deliverance in the midst of the earth, you yourself divided the sea by your strength. Did Moses do that? Who parted the Red Sea? God did. You broke the heads of the sea monsters. Now that's unfortunate. Just translate it dragon. Translate it the same way it's translated in Isaiah 27.1. The dragon who lives in the sea. Why? Why are we rendering this as sea monsters? The, the Hebrew is Tanin. We should be okay with that. Um, this is why we find out that different Bible translators use different committees for, you know, there was one working team working on the, on the Psalms. There was another working team working on the prophets. And there should have been a general Old Testament editor that came through and coordinated everything so that they were consistent in the terminology. So you don't end up with dragon in, in Isaiah 27 and sea monster in, in uh, the Psalms. It's unfortunate. Uh, but this uh, one dragon has multiple heads, by the way. And uh, we see that in Revelation also. Verse 14, you crushed the heads of Leviathan. You gave him as food for the creatures of the wilderness. You broke open the springs and the torrents. You dried up ever-flowing streams. So here's the uh, the description of the activity here. Satan has been defeated before. He's been defeated multiple times before. He had his own rebellion, first of all, on the original angelic earth that left the world a wilderness, that left the world tohu abohu. He continues to have defeats at other times. This is a picture of the Exodus. He has other defeats at other times. He will be ultimately defeated at the second advent. He will be cast in chains, the final fulfillment at Gog and Magog, when he's thrown into the lake of fire, never to rise again. Alright? Never to rise again. Alright, if you want more of that, I recommend our Angelology series and you can do more dragon studies. You can find the gems and the jewels in Ezekiel 28 and uh, come back here to Job and see the, the dragon description in Job 41. We know in the coming tribulation that that, uh, humanity will be in particular trouble. The tribulation will be particularly dangerous for humanity because the cast-down dragon will be filled with fury. Back to Revelation again, Revelation 12. This dragon is dangerous enough as it is. The dragon is dangerous enough as it is. Before then, he's angry. (laughs) Look out. Because in Revelation chapter 12, the dragon is angry. Revelation 12, verses 7 through 12. Things are going to get worse. I realize there's a whole lot of folks out there that are telling you that things are getting better. And there's a branch of theology that says things are getting better. And we are bringing in the kingdom. And it's just as soon as we bring in the kingdom, then we can hand it to Jesus when he gets here and he'll be very thankful and say, thank you for making my kingdom for me and bringing me back. All right? That's not our theology. We know that evil men and impostors are going from bad to worse and this world is getting worse. And when Jesus Christ does return, we'll even find faith on the earth, we're told. No, things are getting worse. And when the dragon is cast down, it's really going to get bad. Revelation chapter 12. And there's a larger context here, but the, uh, the fact that he gets thrown down is going to be significant. Verse 7, there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels waging war with the dragon. The dragon and his angels waged war. And they were not strong enough, and there was no longer a place found for them in heaven. I don't know, does that bother you? That, that Satan can still go to heaven today? That he still has access today to go to the heavenly court and file accusations against each one of us? You think, man, why, why doesn't God just revoke that and throw him in hell right now? Okay. That's what I would do, but then again, I'm not God, so let's not substitute my wisdom for God's wisdom. But at a certain point, either the beginning of the tribulation or the midpoint of the tribulation, the uh, great dragon is going to be thrown down, the serpent of old, who is called the devil and Satan. Any questions? (laughs) That's him. Who deceives the whole world. Why does it seem the whole world believes every lie under the sun? They all believe Big Bang. They all believe... Uh, you know, everything, evolution, and they're all following after all these unbiblical belief systems. Why? Hmm. Well, it's a spiritual dynamic that empowers that kind of a belief system. He and his angels were thrown down with him. See, that's why I think there's a trumpet that's associated with the rapture of the church. I believe that the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God, I think there's angelic warfare that that coincides with our rapture out of here. And that when the bride is brought to heaven, God gives Jesus Christ the privacy that Jesus Christ needs in heaven to evict those fallen angels out of there, to revoke Satan's uh, uh, accusatory status in any event. Whether it's the middle or the beginning of the tribulation, he is going to be thrown down. And all the angels were thrown down with him, the fallen angels, his angels. So I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of His Christ have come. For the accuser, notice one of His titles there, the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down. He who accuses them before our God day and night. All right, that's what He presently does. He's the accuser. Well, He's going to be thrown down. So we should be happy. We should uh, rejoice. Verse 12, rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. It'll be good to be a heavenly resident when that happens. Woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has come down to you having great wrath, knowing that he is only a short time. Okay? Satan's not stupid. He knows the scriptures. He knows the timetable. He knows what happens once he's expelled from heaven. He knows that the time is now short. And every effort he's ever made to exterminate the Jewish race, he's been, he's been trying at it for thousands and thousands of years. Now he knows he's got seven. <laughs> or three and a half, all right? Now he knows that uh, he's got a very, very short time to try to exterminate the Jewish people. The only chance he has a victory is to force God to break one of his promises. And since the only people on earth that have promises from God are the Jewish people, that's who he has to attack, all right? And this is the whole strategy of, of the dragon in this, in this endeavor, so, he has great wrath, knowing he only a short time, and when the dragon saw that he was thrown down to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. Okay? That's not the Roman Catholic Church, that's Israel. Jesus Christ was born of the nation of Israel. And so, uh, Israel has to be protected. All right. If you ever think about that, think about what Hitler tried to do, think about every attempt to exterminate the Jewish people. I think about Xerxes in Persia. I think about uh, Pharaoh in Egypt ordering the midwives to throw all the baby boys into the Nile. I think about Herod in attempting to kill the, the babies in Bethlehem. Every attempt you can think of, Satan has been trying for thousands of years to kill the Jews. And, and, and explain that in human terms. You know Why would, why would there be such global hatred of a, of a tiny little population on this planet? It's well, if you understand the satanic motivation, understand there's a spiritual component that energizes that belief system, then uh it starts to make more sense to you. All right, this vineyard. Gotta keep moving, or we'll run out of time. The vineyard. Well, Jesus is gonna be a much better gardener than Adam or Noah or Solomon, or anyone. This is the second time in the book of Isaiah that a vineyard has come up. The vineyard of this chapter is quite the contrast with chapter 5. And anyone that studies Isaiah and comes across this vineyard in this chapter, they want to say, oh, wait a minute. Didn't we already learn about a vineyard? Wasn't there already a vineyard that was part of the, the content of this book? You know, yes, there was. Way back in chapter 25. Remember, it was only 22 weeks ago. Why, well, did you sleep since then? All right. The, uh, the message in chapter 5 was not a happy message. Uh, the message in chapter 5 was that uh, God had done all these things to take care of his vineyard and they were still a bunch of sinners. That uh, he had done everything imaginable. If you recall. Uh, that he had dug it all around. He planted it on a a fertile hill. He planted it with a choice as a vine. He put a tower in the middle of it. He hewed out a wine vat in it. He expected it to produce good grapes, but it produced only worthless ones. All right. And so we have a metaphor here. We've got a, we've got a, a message that's describing Israel as a failure. But fortunately, of course, we have chapter 27 to give the flip side to show how faithful the Lord is and what he's going to accomplish in the millennial kingdom. And just because Israel blew it in the Old Testament, does that mean God's done with them? No, not at all. And so there's a uh, there's a contrast. He says, what more, in verse 4, what more was there to do? This is chapter 5, verse 4. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done it? Was there anything I didn't do? Was there anything I fell short? Was there anything? And the answer, of course, is no. He did everything possible, everything imaginable, everything within the divine power. But humanity rebelled nonetheless. I expected it to produce good grapes, it produced worthless ones. So he says, Now let me tell you what I'm going to do to my vineyard. I'm going to remove its hedge. It will be consumed. I will break down its wall. It will become trampled ground. I will lay it waste. Now he's doing this, you understand why. So he can plant a new vineyard. He's going to start over, not with the church and replacing Israel, but with Israel in the millennial kingdom. There'll be a whole new vineyard getting set up. And that's why chapter 27 is written the way that it is. All right. So anyway, chapter five was kind of sad and the end of that vineyard and the, uh, and the uh, judgment that they're going to come under, the tribulation that they're going to come under, okay? And, and to me, this, this is, um, I mean, first of all, it's, it's kind of good for us because it's not our judgment, okay? Um, but if you think about it, you understand that there's a purpose for the tribulation, There's a purpose for why God is afflicting Israel in the tribulation, why he's allowing Antichrist and all the Gentiles to trample down the Jews in the tribulation. It's discipline designed to bring them to humility, to bring them to accepting their Christ. There's a reason for it, and that reason has nothing to do with the church. With you and me in the body of Christ, or you and me in the church age, we have no part of it. It is irrelevant for us to be a part of Israel's judgments. Why would I, you know, and for for folks that, uh, you know, man, these post-millennial non-rapturists that think that we're cowards for running away from the tribulation, I would say you're a moron for looking forward to judgment that you have no part in. You know, you might as well just go marching around Jericho seven times and blow a trumpet. There's just as much biblical application there. That was not written for you. You know, are you going to build an ark and start putting animals on it? That wasn't written for you either. All right, let's rightly divide the word of truth. Let's understand what is it that the body of Christ is expected to achieve? What is the purpose for the tribulation? The tribulation of Israel. The time of Jacob's trouble. It has nothing to do with the body of Christ. We're neither Jew nor Gentile. God is going to discipline his earthly covenant nation and then he's going to discipline all the Gentile nations of the earth. Guess what? That's not us either. We are called out from all the nations of the earth. We are a heavenly citizenship. And before tribulation is ever unleashed, the bride is going to be raptured anyway when it comes right down to it. That's why these passages are important. Adam, Noah, and Solomon all failed in their gardening endeavors. In their gardening slash vine dressing endeavors. <laughs> Jesus will have no such defeat. Adam, of course, was placed in the garden, told to cultivate it, to keep it. And he blew it. Genesis 2.15 Noah, after the flood, he planted a vineyard and the first thing he does is get drunk off of it. Conflict then with his youngest son and the circumstances of Genesis chapter 9. That's a pretty ugly chapter at that point. Even Solomon. Maybe we're least familiar with Solomon in Ecclesiastes chapter 2. Ecclesiastes chapter 2. I said to myself, Self, come now. I will test you with pleasure. So enjoy yourself. And behold, it too was futility. Anytime you decide you want to go carnal and try having fun the way the world has fun, realize Saint, uh, that Solomon's already done it far better than you and I could ever afford to do it. okay? And uh, he had the ability, he had the resources, he was able to pursue this, this uh, Ecclesiastes way of life far beyond anything you and I will ever achieve. I said, of laughter, it is madness. Of pleasure, what does it accomplish? I explored with my mind how to stimulate my body with wine while my mind was guiding me wisely. You know, prophesying under the influence. How do you do that? Um, you know, does it help? Does your preaching get better if you slam a shot of tequila before the before the class starts? I wouldn't know. I've never tried. All right, I did a wedding once where the best man had a flask and the groom needed most of it. But... Uh, Not here. All right. That was one of those out there kind of things. Anyway, back to the scripture. I explored with my mind how to stimulate my body with wine while my mind was guiding me wisely, how to take hold of folly until I could see what good there is for the sons of men to do under the heavens. The few years of their lives. You know, life is short, play hard. Okay? I mean, there's your, there's your Nike motto for you right there. There's, you know, the years are short enough as it is, and the fun years are even shorter because you're on kind of a diminished uh, return circumstances as far as youth and health and beauty and, and money and whatever else, you know. The Ecclesiastes lifestyle after a while starts to get expensive, and then you can't afford to do that anymore. And you can't really stay awake that late anyway. I enlarged my works. I built houses for myself. Yeah, that's fun. I planted vineyards for myself. I made gardens and parks for myself. I planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. Made ponds of water for myself from which to irrigate a forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves. I had homeborn slaves. I also possessed flocks and herds larger than all who preceded me in Jerusalem. All right, and when you have this kind of wealth, most likely the the wealthiest man that's ever walked this earth, what have you achieved? Also, I collected for myself silver and gold, the treasures of kings and provinces, I provided for myself male and female singers and the pleasures of men, many concubines. Well, you know when you only have a thousand wives, you need concubines too, right. No, the thousand includes the concubines. Wives and concubines together for for a thousand total. Then I became great. Then I became great and increased more than all who preceded me in Jerusalem and my wisdom stood by me. See, when all of this is done, what has he achieved? Okay? he Totally blew it. The prosperity test, he totally blows it. But Jesus Christ, what a delight. When Jesus Christ plants the vineyard, why, why does he plant a vineyard? What's the purpose in wine? Why do you have wine with your sacrifices? There is actually a valid purpose for wine, a biblical purpose for wine. It's a part of our worship. It's part of our fellowship. It's part of our blessing and our delight. See, Jesus will have no such defeat. Isaiah 27.6, we've already said, Israel will blossom and sprout they will fill the whole world with fruit and that is the uh, the fruit of the vine the fruit of of uh, his vineyard here Israel becomes the global exporter for the finest wine ever seen to all the nations of the millennial earth I wonder if the french are going to be upset about that if they're going to insist that you know you can't call it champagne unless it comes from Or you can't call it... uh, They're very sticky about... uh, Or picky about calling things things if they're named after French places. They say, you can't call it that if it doesn't come from the French place. Well, in the millennium, they probably won't care. What's the purpose for wine? What's the purpose for alcohol? Why did God design that? Why does God do the things that he does? Why does does bacon taste so great? What's, you know... He could have designed us like sheep where our diet consists of grass, one flavor. And, you know, I'm assuming grass has one flavor. I've never compared grass types in their flavor. But why do we have beef and pork and chicken and all the bacon and all the ham and all the varieties of flavor? Why do we have the different smells? Why do we have the different colors? Why do we have beauty the way that we have? Why did God design us to have the capacity to appreciate those beauties? Why do we make different sounds? Why are there high voices and low voices? Why are there blendings of voices? Why is there beauty? I think beauty itself is an apologetic for the existence of God. When it comes right down to it. Psalm 104, verse 15. Let's see. What does he say? This is everything that God does. Bless the Lord, O my soul. All the things that God does. And he's just so smart in everything that he does. Birds are singing and all the animals are doing what they're doing. He causes the grass to grow for the cattle, vegetation for the labor of man, so that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine, which makes man's heart glad. There's a purpose for it. It's a benefit to humanity so that he may make his face glisten with oil and food, which sustains man's heart. The trees of the Lord drink their fill, the cedars of Lebanon, which he planted, the birds and and so forth. But just pinpointing there in verse 15, wine which makes man's heart glad. There is a purpose for it. There's a design for it. Now, has the fall affected things? Of course. The curse on the earth, has that affected the vine? Of course. Has it affected our body? Absolutely. Our present body is very addictive in nature, and that's the consequence of sin. But guess what? In The coming millennial kingdom, that's done. All right, Our bodies are going to be resurrected and glorified. No more addictions. No more addictive uh, human weaknesses in our glorified state. And the vine that he's producing, that Jesus is producing, won't be under that curse. Alright? What a blessing. Making man's heart glad. Think of the, the relaxation value that that has. Finally, there's a parable in Judges 9. And I said if I had enough time, I'd get there. I think we're probably too short. Just real quickly, Joshua, Judges, Ruth. Judges chapter 9. I'll just bring it to your attention, and then maybe, I don't know, if you have any questions, we can talk about it Wednesday night or something. But in Judges nine thirteen, another reference to wine. They're trying to find somebody to be their king, and they keep getting turned down. And this is all in, a, in an allegory, all right? So, um, understand it for what it is. And um, in verse eight, the trees go forth and went a king over them, and they said to the olive tree, Reign over us. And the olive tree said, Shall I leave my fatness, which the Lord, which God and men are honored, and go to wave over the trees? You know, I got a purpose, and that purpose isn't being a king. No, thank you. Then the tree said to the fig tree, You come reign over us. But the fig tree said to them, Shall I leave my sweetness and my good fruit? and go to wave over the trees. There's a purpose for fig trees. Okay. Then the trees came to the vine and said, You, come rain over us. And the vine said to them, Shall I leave my new wine which cheers God and men, and go to wave over the trees? And I think uh, I have to look at that. I think it actually references the Elohim, the created angels and men, and go to wave over the trees. Finally, all the trees said to the bramble, You, come rain over us. And the bramble says, okay, (laughs) got nothing else better to do anyway. I'm kind of part of the curse as it is anyway. If in truth you are anointing me as king over you, come and take refuge in my shade. But if not, may fire come out from the bramble and consume the cedars of Lebanon. All right, well, that's an allegory. And there's a whole lot more in that. And I'm not going to teach that this morning, but... It still points out, what does it point out about the vine? What's the purpose for the vine? Why did God create certain uh, things to ferment? Why did God create a, a fermentation process? And everybody wants to assume that, well, it, it wasn't like that before the fall. Wait a minute. Okay, I'm, it got damaged before the, after the fall, certainly. But it's going to be a feature in the millennium, and it's going to be a feature on the new earth. When there is no more sin, there is no more death. So what was the design of alcohol before the fall? Anyway, vineyard, things to look forward to. Finally, why is there a tribulation? The tribulation of Israel is their national threshing in preparation for holiness in the millennium. The tribulation of Israel is their national threshing. Now I put... Refining in parentheses, so that you understand, I'm going to mix my metaphors probably pretty extensively in this in this time. But I'm mixing the metaphors because Scripture mixes the metaphors. Here, it's an agricultural context, and so it's threshing. Elsewhere, if it's metallurgical, if it's if it's metalworking, then it's refining. And depending on the scope of the of the metaphor it is depending on the scope of the passage you use the one that's appropriate but it's the same thing either way it's the same it's the same concept behind it all that is divine discipline is designed to produce repentance that's what threshing's about that's what refining is about that's what discipline is about in your life and in my life and on a national basis to Israel in the tribulation so the tribulation of Israel is their national threshing in preparation for holiness in the millennium. And this is really the the uh, context here for verses 7 through 13. And um, a lot of it takes a lot of work, more than we're going to get to today. Um but notice how personal this is. It's Jacob's iniquity in verse 9. It's the time of Jacob's trouble in the book of Jeremiah. It is oriented towards Israel. Remember, Jacob is the son that was renamed Israel. And, uh, yeah. When his limbs are dry in verse 11, they are broken off. Women come and make a fire with them. I mean, what else are you going to do with a dead stick? Okay, a dead stick, is, it's, it's dead. It's broken off. It's not going to grow anything ever again, so chuck it in the fire and use the dead wood to burn it. They are not a people of discernment. They are not a people of discernment, but they need to be. If they're going to enter into the Millennial Kingdom, they will need to become a people of discernment. They're going to need to repent. They have to change their thinking as to who the Lord is and what the Scripture says concerning the Messiah. And at a certain point in the tribulation, the Jewish people are going to wake up and realize, wait a minute, we've been looking for Messiah who is to come, and he already came. Messiah came 2,000 years ago, and we crucified him. Now we need to humble ourselves before the Messiah whom we crucified so that he can come at his second advent. And that's the whole point of the discipline that Israel is placed under. So they are not a people of discernment, we're told here in verse 11. Alright. Oh, there's so much here. Jacob's iniquity will be forgiven. How, how is a nation's iniquity forgiven? Is it different from how an individual's sins are forgiven? How does a nation have their sins forgiven? How does a nation come under the blood of the covenant? Okay. You understand the shedding of the blood is only step one. That blood has to be applied. For for you and I on an individual basis, that blood is applied when we believe in Christ to receive eternal life. But when does the blood get applied to Israel? When does Israel come under the blood of Jesus Christ, the blood that was shed at Calvary, but the blood that has not yet been applied to Israel as a nation? Because they are not yet a people of discernment. All right. Well, verse 12, In that day, Did I finish verse 11? Yeah, I did not. Therefore, their Maker will not have compassion on them. Their Creator will not be gracious to them. Only for a season, though. Understand that. He is a gracious God. He is a compassionate God. Ultimately, He will. But for this finite period of time, He will not. They are going to receive the greatest judgment they've ever been under. And for the allotted period of time, He has no compassion. He has no grace. He has no mercy. He leaves them in the hands of the, of the dragon and of the beast. In that day, the Lord will start his threshing. Okay? That's why he allows it to happen, because he accomplishes his purpose. And it's threshing from the flowing stream of the Euphrates to the brook of Egypt. In other words, the totality of the land grant that he originally promised to Israel, to Abraham. The Lord will start his threshing from the flowing stream of the Euphrates to the brook of Egypt and you will be gathered up one by one, O sons of Israel. That's huge. One by one. It's always been the practice. He deals with Israel on a national basis. He encompasses them as a nation. He blesses them as a nation. He puts them under laws as a nation. He judges them as a nation. But when it comes time to bring them into the millennial kingdom, Not only does he regather the nation in totality, but he also personally starts to focus one by one by one by one. Because not every racially Jewish person is going to enter into the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ. Only believers, only born-again believers will enter the millennial kingdom. That's why he has to look at it on an individual basis. You will be gathered up one by one, O sons of Israel. It will come about also that in that day a great trumpet will be blown and those who were perishing in the land of Assyria and who were scattered in the land of Egypt, why those two nations? Okay, It's going to be global, it's going to be every nation, but these two in particular, we already saw in an earlier chapter, they become centers of worship in the millennial reign. Those who were perishing in the land of Assyria and who were scattered in the land of Egypt, they will come and worship the Lord in the holy mountain, At Jerusalem. There's a regathering of the nation of Israel. All right. Three points out of this last section here. First of all, God will be at work in Israel. In the tribulation of Israel, God will be at work in Israel as He presently works in the church. This threshing process that He's going to do with Israel, He already does it, He does it with us. He does it with us on an individual basis. When He threshes us, when He refines us, the process in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 8-10, through 10, we can study that and we can study that in parallel with the nation of Israel and the tribulation. God will work in Israel as He presently works in us. But He does everything in its proper order. He does not resume His plan for Israel until our church is complete. We study that in Romans, Romans nine, ten and eleven. It just boggles my mind how folks can be so bought into the whole idea of replacement theology that God is done with the Jews. Wait a minute. Second Corinthians four verses eight through ten. And hopefully we can kind of see what the process is on this this is this is the the reality of the church age. This is what God accomplishes in the lives of those of his children. I know a lot of Christians don't like it <laughs> they They kind of want you know they want to be in kind of a millennial circumstance today. They don't want problems. Well, life is about problems. It's about suffering. It's about circumstances. That's how we learn. We have this treasure in earth and vessels so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. Afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Okay? Now these apply to us. Think of them in terms of Israel in the tribulation. They're going to be afflicted in every way, but not crushed. He will save a remnant. He's going to deliver the believers through and enter them into their millennial kingdom. Perplexed but not despairing. I'll be honest, there's times where you just shake your head and say, I don't have any answers. I don't know. What are we going to do about this? I don't have an idea, but God does. All right, so I'm not despairing because He has a plan and He knows what He's doing. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always caring about in the body the dying of Jesus. This is huge. This is why you and I submit to our afflictions. We submit to our conflicts, our undeserved suffering, everything that we go through or at least we're supposed to so that we can be a testimony of Jesus Christ to others so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our body now this is what we go through experientially in the body of Christ today this is how this is how we grow for Israel this is how they're going to be prepped as a nation this is how they're going to be prepared for the millennial kingdom ever think about that why 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 do they have wilderness wanderings after the exodus why don't they just walk through the red sea march straight up to the land of milk and honey and take the land and just immediately on the very next day why did they have to have training in the wilderness why do they have hardship in the wilderness i'm not talking about the the 40-year delay because of their sin but the original design for the delay when they went to Sinai, when they received the law, when they wandered in the wilderness for that first time before Kadesh Barnea, why did they have other enemies they fought in the meantime? To prepare them for the conquest. The, 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 the wilderness was their proving ground. The wilderness was their uh, preparation for the kingdom. Threshing and refining are the processes by which chaff and dross... Did I spell that right? Okay. I've got to check my spelling. Chaff and dross are removed in preparation for the coming kingdom. All right? I call it knocking off the rough edges. God knows what He's doing. He's got to work us over. It's true for us individually, but more than that, it's true for Israel as a nation. That's why He sent the forerunner in the first advent. That's why He's sending Elijah in the second advent to prepare the, the Israel for their kingdom. John the Baptist came preaching the kingdom of heaven is at hand, and they were not prepared. They were so wrapped up in Pharisaical legalism, They, the last thing they were ready for was the kingdom of God on earth. Threshing and refining. Threshing and refining. And for us, of course, it's preparation for eternity. But for Israel, it's preparation for their coming kingdom. How is the church going through the tribulation going to prepare Israel for their coming kingdom? Okay. It just won't and can't and, and makes no sense. All right. Verses twelve and thirteen we've already read. It'll come back again in Isaiah forty eight, verse ten. Uh, Jeremiah nine and verse seven. I've already referenced at least once. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I will refine them and assay them. And what else can I do because of the daughter of my people? What else can I do? He's preparing his people for the kingdom. Malachi. Malachi 3, verses 1-4. through How does he close the Old Testament? What is the last word in the Hebrew canon? Threshing. Refining, purifying, judgment, preparing his nation for the kingdom. I think it's uh, chapter 3 and chapter 4. But in chapter 3, verses 1-4, through four, it says, Behold, I am going to send my messenger. He will clear the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come into his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? Oh, man. When an Old Testament prophet came to town, the the town elders got nervous. What are you doing here? Why are you here? Samuel will come to town, and sometimes people will start getting chopped up into bits. All right when Elijah comes right before second advent, he starts preparing Israel for the coming of the Christ. Look out. Who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire, like fuller's soap. He will sit as a smelter and purifier of silver. And he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver so that they may present to the Lord offerings in righteousness. You know, I'm not afraid of the tribulation. I'm just not designed for the tribulation. It's like I'm not afraid of The Mongol hordes, you know, way back in the day when they built the Great Wall, they had stuff they were afraid of. I'm not afraid of that either. It doesn't apply to me. The tribulation doesn't apply to the church. Chapter 4 The day is coming, burning like a furnace. The arrogant and every evildoer will be chaff, and the day that is is, uh, coming will set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts. This is for Israel to prepare them for their coming kingdom. It has nothing to do with the body of Christ then this process is what's necessary for Israel's repentance. This process is necessary for Israel's repentance. I think it's much harder. First Advent, they were looking for a virgin to have a son. All right. But see, they rejected him. Now they have to look for the Messiah whom they pierced and the humility of that to call upon the name of the Lord. So Ezekiel 20, verses 43 and 44. Here's another reason why the millennium is only a thousand years long. It's only a thousand years long because the millennium is designed for Israel to complete their grieving. And after a thousand years, God says, Okay, that's enough. How long do you grieve over things? How long does a nation grieve over things? Ezekiel 20, verses 43 and 44 says um, that you will loathe yourselves. Therefore, you will remember your ways and all your deeds with which you have defiled yourselves, and you will loathe yourselves in your own sight for all the evil things that you have done. Then you will know that I am the Lord when I have dealt with you for my name's sake, not according to your evil ways or according to your corrupt deeds, O house of Israel, declares the Lord God. They're going to loathe themselves. They're going to go through a thousand years of of undeserved blessing, loathing themselves for what they've done that made the the tribulation necessary. Zechariah 12, verses 10-14, through they will look upon him whom they pierced. Can you imagine? I mean, it's one thing, we know, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. And my mother gave me that gospel message. And I was told how Jesus died on the cross. But I didn't put him on the cross. Not literally. Okay, I know I'm a sinner and I could make a case. but Israel put him on the cross. Literally. Israel rejected their king. Literally. And now the only Messiah who can save them at Armageddon is the Messiah they crucified. That's why they need to be humbled. That's why they need to be disciplined. And that's what this discipline is designed to do. Jesus gives the one requirement for his coming back in Matthew 23. Verses 37 through 39. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. My last passage, I promise. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. And you were unwilling. God will never ever coerce volition. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. For I say to you from now on, you will not see me until you volitionally are adjusted And you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They need the volitional adjustment that only the tribulation will produce in Israel as a nation. They will have to call upon the name of the Lord. The Lord they crucified, they have to call upon the name of the Lord to be saved. All right. Thank you, Father, for this chapter. Thank you for this book study. Father, uh, I pray that we would be uh, humble before your truth. We identify that dragon as ferocious as he is, and yet we have armor. You have equipped us for victory. And I pray that we would understand the the uh, empowerment of that armor, the empowerment of our weaponry, the power of our humility before you as we humble ourselves before you. Father, uh, teach us the uh, the full applications of everything we've looked at here today. Sometimes I think this uh, this... Chapter-by-chapter chapter approach is, is, is overwhelming, Father. Just too much information, too much content. All we're getting is a big picture, and we know there's more. We know we need to go back. We know we need to dig it out a little bit deeper. But, Father, this is what you blessed us with, and I pray that you would make use of it. Uh, equip us with this big picture to have the, the, uh, the, the overview of what the church is designed for, what Israel is designed for, what's our destiny, what's their destiny. Help us to understand these things and explain them to others. And I do thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.